Last time we made the point in the Word of God that all of us as Christians are constantly being watched by non-Christians. And we pointed out that most of the time, those non-Christians are watching us to find excuses for them to keep rejecting Christ and minimizing his church. And last Sunday, we looked at 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, and we saw together that as citizens of the Bahamas, we are to submit to government, provided that that government rewards good and punishes evil. And we saw last time that we are to submit to such government for the sake of the non-Christians who are constantly observing us. We could say that a good testimony is that for which we all should long. Last Sunday, looking at verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2, we saw that it's typical that the lost without Christ will slander us. They will call our good evil, and they will call us evildoers. And last week still, by way of review, verses 11 and 12 gave us five specific ways that we are to live in light of being scrutinized and being slandered. To review, number one, we are to live as submitted citizens of heaven who submit to earthly government. That is in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 13 through 14. Secondly, we are to live as persons who abstain from our own lusts. That's in verse 11. Third, we are to live as persons with excellent behavior who do good deeds. That's verse 12. Fourth, we are to live as persons who leave a legacy of glory coming to our God when persons who slandered us formerly come to faith in Christ for their salvation eventually. That's verse 12. Fifth, we are to live as citizens who are submitted to, in our case, Bahamian government for the sake of the lost. That's verse 12. Now we are prepared with review having been completed to go forward further into our passage in 1 Peter 2, specifically verses 13 through 17, which I will read, and then I will make some comments upon these verses. So follow in your Bibles 1 Peter 2, uh, 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And so these verses provide us a continuation of how God would have us to live given the fact that our redeemed lives are scrutinized by the lost and given that our lives, our reputations are slandered by those who are spiritually still in blindness. And what we see in verses 13 and 14 is that we are to live with self-imposed submission to government. We are to live with self-imposed submission to government. Verses 13 and 14, submit yourselves 
For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Oh, yes, we are to live with self-imposed submission to government. In the Greek, we have a passive imperative. It's a command, and the action is done by us to us. The kind of submission to government, this self-imposed submission to government, is something that we want to do from the inside out and not from the outside in. To honor Jesus Christ and to have a good testimony before a lost and perishing world, we should have an inward-out motivation, desire, to obey government that punishes evil and rewards righteousness. So if I use a very practical and real-life example for us, the JFK Highway is about the only road on this island that you could get a good speed up to really speed, right? And many a person has sped to J on JFK to the airport because they were going to be late to get on their own plane or they were going to be late to get someone that they had brought to the airport onto their plane. What this is saying is that we ought to have a self-imposed submission to the speed limit on JFK, not only because there may be a radar trap and the fine is excessive, but also, and more importantly, that we want to honor Christ by honoring the laws of the Bahamas and have an other's orientation that if I were to speed, I could hurt someone else by speeding. And so we are to submit ourselves, verse 13 says, for the Lord's sake to human, every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him or for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And that's an action that isn't to be done to us by a speed limit sign or by a fine or by a radar trap. It's an action to be done by us, a choice we make to self-impose submission to the law of the Bahamas for the glory of God. Next, in verses, verse 15, rather, we are to live silencing opponents of Christianity with our volunteered submission to government. Verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. When we submit to Bahamian government that punishes evil and rewards good, when we submit to such a government in obedience to the laws of the land, we will silence opponents of Christianity by seeing our volunteered submission to government. What does that look like, Pastor Rob? Well, that looks very similar to, for many of us, when we come back to the airport from being abroad. And we fill out our forms, and we put our bags up on the examination table with the customs agent. Are we prone to think, oh, God, don't let her look in that bag? Are we prone to shoot up a little prayer? Oh, Lord, help him not to go to the bottom of that bag. God, 
Could two days' worth of wear in Miami make my tennis shoes look used? We don't want that. We don't want that. Because every other person, that's how they live without Christ. But we who bear the name of Jesus Christ, we ought to be different. So that we help that agent get to the bottom of every single bag. Let me pull this for you. You see that? Yeah, that's a purchase. Here's the receipt. This voluntary submission to government will silence opponents of Christianity. What about you who are in business? You who are receiving revenues from business enterprise, do you claim all of those revenues or do you not do so to avoid that? Voluntary submission to government and to the laws of the land silence opponents of Christianity. I can think of the time in Canada when handguns had to be registered. And my father, owning a handgun, he'd never shot it. It was an antique handgun that had been given to him. And he had it in our home. And when the law came out, I remember my dad taking that handgun, which was from his granddad, to the police station and turning it in. My dad had never abused the handgun, wasn't intending to, but he turned in his handgun in voluntary submission to Canadian government. And so going on, we are to live using our freedom in Christ for obedience and not for the disguise of evil. Verse 16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must never view grace as some kind of a wrapping paper. God's grace is some kind of a wrapping paper that we are going to wrap around the box that we call our self-permission to sin. Galatians is all about that, that we are never to take our own self-permission to sin and wrap it in something called God's grace and be happy with that. No, we are to live out our freedom in Christ with obedience and not with any disguise of evil. But there's more. According to verse 17, we are to live honoring all persons. Honoring all persons, including government leaders. Verse 17, honor all men. Do you know what all means in Greek? All. Honor all men, even the unhonorable. Honor all men. You know why? Because every human being is made in God's image. Every human being, therefore, has dignity and worth. You know, one of the things that I was struck by when I first came to the Commonwealth of the Bahamas and to this particular local church that warmed my heart then and continues to warm my heart today is how you say to each other, all is well, but then you look into the person's eyes that you ask the question of and you wait for an answer. 
All is well? Then you wait with eye contact, and that communicates to the person you have asked that question, I care. I have time. I'm listening. Isn't that way in the U.S. or in Canada? Or when I find myself in a waiting room, maybe at the car dealership for maintenance, or maybe it's the doctor's office to see the doctor, or wherever I might find myself, um, a cafe to have breakfast, I love it that when a person walks into a group of people in a restaurant or a waiting room and they say, good morning, I love that. That doesn't happen in the United States. That doesn't happen in Canada. I love it when you pass by someone on the sidewalk, you do not know them and they do not know you, and they will say, good morning. I love that. That is part of honoring all persons. And God says, you honor all persons, including government leaders. The other thing I see in verse 17 as to how we ought to live, given that our lives for Christ are scrutinized, and given that our lives for Jesus are slandered, is that we are to live loving our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are to live our lives loving our brothers and sisters in the Lord. 17, verse 17, honor all men, love the brotherhood. There are two, essentially two Greek words for love in the New Testament. Phileo love is friendship love. Friendship love means I'll babysit your kids this weekend if you'll babysit my kids next weekend. It's reciprocation love. It's, it's, it's okay, it's, it's all right, but it's not the deepest or most profound love. The most profound and the deepest kind of love is agape love. That is God's love for us. Agape love figures out the best, deepest, most profound need in the one who is loved, and then it sacrifices to meet that need without consideration for the cost or the payback. That is agape love. And agape is the word being used in verse 17. Honor all men, agape love the brotherhood. What does that look like? That looks like you and I asking each other a direct question. What are your needs lately? What are your needs lately? And then listening. And then if you can sacrificially give to meet that need, then do it. Give. Love. We are to live lives that display this agape love between us. Remember, Jesus said in John 13 that that's how the outsider will really understand that we're followers of Jesus who are authentic. And then uh, verse 17 ends with the honor the king, which ties back to the point that we are to live honoring all persons, including government leaders. We are to honor the king. The last way we are to live in light of being scrutinized and in light of being slandered is that we are to live fearing God Almighty. Verse 17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God. Fear God. The Greek word here for fear is phobeo, Phobeo, which means to for moral reasons. 
to be in awe, to revere, and to honor for moral reasons. And so because I look at the absolute perfections of God's holiness, and I am honest enough and realistic enough to understand my failure to meet that standard of perfect holiness, for moral reasons, I'm in awe of God. For moral reasons, I am reverent toward God. For moral reasons, I honor God. At our church in Pennsylvania, I was told of a visitor who came to our service. I did not meet the visitor. I did not greet the visitor. But this was told to me. Pastor, we had a couple visit us this morning from the Roman Catholic Church. I said, oh, that's good. And then the usher said, and they had an observation about our church. I said, well, that's interesting. What was their observation? They said, we've never been in a Protestant church before, but we were really surprised that when we walked into the sanctuary, it sounded like the food court at the mall. Because in the Roman Catholic Church, when you walk into the sanctuary, it is silent. I'll let you think about that. Then, under the, t- under the topic of fearing God Almighty and how we live, you know how some turkeys, frozen turkeys, have a little label on them that has a turkey hotline. If you want to know how to cook a turkey or other questions about turkeys, you phone this 800 number and you get your questions answered. Well, I'm told that one of the operators at the 1-800-TURKEY helpline got a call, and it went like this. Yes, could you tell me if frozen turkeys ever go bad? And the person said, no, if they're fully frozen, they should be fine. And the lady said, well, that's good. I just donated a 23-year-old in the freezer turkey to my church. We are to live fearing God because we recognize the fundamental differentiation between his perfect holiness and our holiness that is spotty at best. So this is the part of the sermon, you and your government, May the Lord help us live it out. Now we come to the second portion of the sermon, which is you and your sweet suffering. And for some of you, as you hear me say sweet suffering, you say, what? You know, suffering, okay, by itself. Sweet, okay, by itself. But you're going to put the two together? Sweet suffering? Yes. Because the passage goes on to talk about what I'm calling sweet suffering. For the purpose of definition, Let's define sweet suffering as experiencing difficulty and pain due to putting Christ first. Experiencing difficulty and pain simply for putting Christ first. 
That's sweet suffering. Of course, there certainly are Christians who suffer when they sin and fail to put Christ first. That's not sweet suffering. That's, I'm going to call it sour suffering. That's God in love saying, you disobey me, you sin, you don't put my son first, you're going to have some consequences of reaping and sowing your lifestyle, you're going to have some suffering. That's not the kind of suffering I'm talking about in this passage. That's sour suffering. When someone comes to my office for counseling and we get exploring their life and there's unconfessed habitual sin in their life that they don't want to admit or confess and they say they're suffering, I look them in the eye and say, I'm glad you're suffering. You need to suffer. Like when you have a sliver under your nail, it's supposed to hurt so you know how to get it out. So we're not talking about sour suffering here. We're talking about sweet suffering. We're talking about the genuine, sincere, obedient, yielded, humble Christian who is suffering simply because they love Jesus and simply because they're doing it Jesus' way. That's the kind of suffering these verses talk about. For example, sweet suffering is the student who is bullied at school simply for being kind and honest and hardworking. Sweet suffering is the wife who remains true to her marriage vows to the Lord and to her husband, although he's unfaithful. And she prays and she works and she trusts God for the healing in her sick marriage that only her husband's repentance can bring to pass. Sweet suffering. Or their sweet suffering is the employee who has passed by for promotion and for a raise in pay simply because she will not lie or take advantage of her customers. 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25, talk to us about this sweet suffering. You will remember, I hope, that our Sermon series title is Refiner's Fire, Living in Victory in the Face of Opposition. A subtitle on that theme for the book of 1 Peter could be Suffering for Righteousness' Sake in the Hope of Glory. What I want to submit to you as my church family this morning is that one way that we can be okay with sweet suffering is to consider the nature of our inheritance in Christ. If we turn back to 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, listen to what your inheritance is in Jesus if you're saved. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In the first place, your inheritance is imperishable. That is, it cannot be touched by death. In the second place, your inheritance is undefiled. That is, it cannot be touched by evil. And third, your inheritance will not fade away. That is, it can't be touched by time. 
And so when you and I as Christian employees see that death and evil and time all cannot depreciate what God has in store for us in heaven, it can go a long way to us positively changing our attitudes on the job when we are experiencing sweet suffering. And so to this end, go with me to 1 Peter 2 now and verse 18. And before I read verse 18, let me say that this verse's truth is for all of us who have ever had an unreasonable boss. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you work for an unreasonable boss because he or she may be with us in the sanctuary. This verse is a truth for any of us who have ever had an unreasonable boss. And this verse is especially for those of us who will go to work tomorrow and except for the grace of God interposing in the situation, you will go to work tomorrow and work for a very difficult and unfairly demanding supervisor. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, but also to those who are unreasonable. And so what, to what does God call the Christian employee who has the unreasonable boss? To respectful submission. Respectful submission. You see, our Lord is well pleased with the Christian worker who is loyal and respectful and obedient even to an unreasonable boss. And why would God be that way? Why would God will that? Why would God be blessed by you respecting and obeying your unreasonable boss? Verse 19 tells us, for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. God is pleased with sweet suffering because our Lord makes a direct connection between us obeying him and us choosing to obey even an unreasonable human boss. The words in verse 19 that make this link are the following. If for the sake of conscience toward God. The verse is saying that if we will obey an unreasonable boss in order to keep our consciences clear and clean before God, then we are part of sweet suffering and God will favor and bless the person who volunteers to stay in a system and condition of sweet suffering. Now, at this point, I believe I should point out that it is the unreasonable but not the ungodly boss to whom we are to be submitted that is to say, the minute your human boss crosses a line from being unreasonable to crossing the line to be unethical, that he would have you to break Bahamian law, that he would tell you to be unethical with your customers, you don't obey that. 
And with the apostles in Acts 5.29, you say to that, I must obey God rather than men. You and I as employees cannot maintain a clear conscience before God if we have to sin because our boss says it's part of our job. What verse 19 is saying is that God favors his son or his daughter who bear up under the sorrow caused by obeying an unreasonable boss. To sweet suffering that you subject yourself to voluntarily at your workplace every work day. You may be wondering why would this be? Why would our God command for us sweet suffering? There are five reasons in the remaining verses of our paragraph. Five reasons God would have us to suffer for sweetly suffer. First, suffering for sinning isn't commendable. Suffering for sinning isn't commendable. It's par for the course. It's the law of you reap what you sow. It's that person when he comes to me and says that he's, that he's somehow baptized sin in his life with the wrapping paper of grace, and he says, man, am I suffering? And I say, you know you're sinning. Yeah, I'm sinning, but I don't want to give it up. I say, then you're going to suffer. There's nothing commendable in the eyes of God for a person suffering for sinning. Because suffering for sinning is sour suffering and not sweet suffering. The second thing, after suffering for sinning, isn't commendable. The second reason that we are to see sweet suffering as being of God is that sweet suffering is part and parcel with our calling into God's family. Part and parcel with being called into God's family through adoption is that we are going to have to suffer a sweet suffering. Hudson Taylor, who had his fear of suffering as he ministered on mission fields, said this, it is possible to receive salvation and eternal life through Christ, but with a very imperfect appreciation of the nature, privileges, and responsibilities of our calling. To what are we called? To do well, to suffer for it, and to take it patiently. Now, None of the proceedings of God are arbitrary. All the acts and all the requirements of perfect wisdom and perfect goodness must of necessity be wise and good. We are called, when we so suffer, to take it patiently, thankfully, and joyfully, because seen from a right point of view, there is neither ground nor excuse for impatience but on the contrary, abundant cause for overflowing thanks and joy. The early Christians rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer. To make the message intelligible, it must be lived. Be glad that you have the opportunity of making the grace of God intelligible to unbelievers. The greater the persecutions are, the greater the power of your testimony. And so I hope you heard it as I read it, that Hudson Taylor's point is that 
Patiently enduring sweet suffering makes God's grace intelligible, understandable to the unsaved. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. And so, put another way, sweet suffering is a family resemblance thing between members of God's family. And so in this second place, God commands suffering, commends suffering for doing right because Jesus suffered for doing right. And Jesus is every Christian's example, template, role model. Third, how could it be that God would call us to sweet suffering? Third, sweet suffering demands that the sufferer entrust him or herself to God. Sweet suffering demands that the sufferer entrust him or herself to God. Verses 22 and 23. Who committed no sin, that is Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus, of course, didn't lash out at those who lashed out at him and murdered him because Jesus was happy, content, satisfied to entrust his vindication to the Heavenly Father. And what a vindication it was. A bodily resurrection from the dead. And so you can see, I hope, that we are in an ideal position when God calls us to suffer for doing what's right because then we can keep entrusting ourselves to our God for him to protect us, for him to relieve us, for him to prove that the convictions we hold from his word are true after all. And so... In the third place, God commends sweet suffering for doing right because it forces the sufferer to entrust his or herself and well-being into the Lord's hands. The expression goes that you really don't know the worth of your anchor until you're out in the storm. The fourth reason the Lord in his wisdom commends to us sweet suffering is that sweet suffering reminds us of our identification with Christ our identification with Christ, verse 24, and he himself, that is Jesus, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. The reason Jesus didn't lash out at those that lashed out at him was he knew that his father would vindicate him. But under this point, in short, suffering for doing right as his followers provides us with the daily opportunity to pick up our crosses and carry them. The daily opportunity to deny ourselves, to reckon, to figure, to count ourselves crucified with Christ, dead, unresponsive, to our old sin natures, but alive, responsive, obedient to Christ's righteousness. When we do right, 
and suffer for doing so, it gives us the very vivid reminder that we have been crucified with Christ and sin, singular, the law of sin and death, no longer has to be our master. And when we do right and we suffer for it, it also gives us a reminder that we were raised with Christ, made alive to the Holy Spirit in resurrection with Christ, made free and empowered to the obeying of God by doing right things, no matter what the consequences will be for doing them. Now, I don't have time this morning to unpack all of it, what it means that uh, it says there that we have been healed, for by his wounds you were healed. That will be for another message, I hope, sometime. But what I do want to point out is that the healing here by Christ's wounds is precious in two very different ways. Number one, the guilt of our sins is washed away because of the wounds of Christ. This table reminds us. That's the concept. Christ died for us instead of us. But equally precious about Christ's wounds is that they deal with the cancellation of the mastery of our sin natures. This is the you died with Christ component. There's a Christ died for you component to his wounds, and there's a you died with Christ component to his wounds. Galatians 2.20. When I first saw Golgotha in Jerusalem, when I was standing with Beth and we were on an observation, little observation platform and looking at Golgotha above us, a rock-faced precipice that does look like a skull, a flattened top to the rock, massive rocks, I remember what I thought. I thought, that's where Jesus died for me. And that's where I died with Jesus. Same cross. And so sweet suffering reminds us of our identification with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. And last, at least for this passage, sweet suffering drives us back to Jesus for his care and for his guidance. Verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep. That's the story of much of my life. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. There are many reasons that Jesus likens us to sheep, not the least of which I believe is that sheep are dumb and we don't even know it. And like sheep, we tend to think that we can get along just fine without a shepherd. And like sheep, we are prone to wander into trouble. And one of the ways 
that we are reminded that we absolutely need our good shepherd named the Lord Jesus Christ is when we must suffer for doing right. Suffering for doing right, sweet suffering, drives us back to Jesus for him to care for us and for him to guide us. And so therefore, we would do well to look at our sweet suffering as the way the good shepherd pulls us to his breast tight. Yes, sweet suffering for doing what is right is Jesus' way of shortening the figurative leash or tether that's upon us. Sweet suffering because we're putting Jesus Christ first, is how our good shepherd crooks us back to his side. You know that the ancient Near Eastern shepherd carried a straight, heavy stick, a rod. He used that to beat off the predators for sheep. But also in his arsenal was a staff or a crooked stick a stick that was straight and then came to the end and had a big swooping curve to it like a candy cane. And when we suffer for doing what's right and it hurts and we're scared and we wish it would just stop, Jesus, our good shepherd, gathers us out by the the crook of his staff and he brings us close to himself to tell us it's all right, to tell us there's a greater purpose in suffering for doing good, to reassure us. In a group this size, I'm absolutely positive there are precious souls that are suffering for doing right. Suffering in business, suffering in marriage, suffering school, Because you love Jesus. The only thing you've done wrong is you love Jesus and you put him first. May this time in God's word remind us that we can endure sweet suffering and we ought to with patience because the suffering for sinning isn't commendable. Because sweet suffering is part and parcel of being called into God's family. Because sweet suffering demands that the sufferer entrust him or herself to God. Because sweet suffering reminds us of our identification with Christ in death and resurrection. And because sweet suffering drives us back to Jesus for care and guidance. I would like to pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that suffering at the best of times is hard is not something we welcome. It's something we want to minimize and then eliminate. But we thank you that there is a category of suffering that is from you and for you. Sweet suffering. Lord, I pray for the young boy or girl or the teenager or the adult or the senior adult who as this sermon has been preached, they go, man, that's me. I'm suffering for doing right. Thank you that we can understand why you allow that. 
why you value that, why you use that in our lives. Lord, encourage each one who is experiencing sweet suffering today. May we keep our eyes on Jesus and know that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, and that he has a plan that will bring good to us and glory to his name. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.